what I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness. I have no one to forgive me. What I envy most about you Christians is your forgiveness because I have no one to forgive me. There are words said by the secular humanist Marguerite Lansky who died in 1988. And she's right, isn't she? That concept of forgiveness is the most beautiful, the most profound, the most liberating truth about Christianity. Uh, human forgiveness is quite profound, isn't it? You know, when you've wronged somebody or you've hurt somebody, you've offended somebody, and you have the humility and the courage and the boldness just to say those words, I'm, I'm sorry, would you forgive me? At that moment, what you long to hear is the words, I forgive you. But you want more than words, don't you? You actually want actions. Because forgiveness is more than words. Forgiveness is behavior. You want that person to to treat you as a forgiven person. You want that person uh, to treat you as though you've never done anything wrong. No grudges, no retaliation, no payback. You want to live as a forgiven person. Now, human forgiveness is quite profound. But to know that you can stand before a right and holy and just God and hear the words, you're forgiven, that's extraordinary. Did you hear those words of Jesus on the cross? His first words, Father, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. Who is the them in that, word, in that verse? These are the people who mocked Jesus and taunted Jesus and flogged Jesus and beat Jesus until his skin was shredded. These are the, the men and the women who, who crucified him. And yet Jesus prays, Father, forgive them. Father, do not hold this against them. It's extraordinary. If you've never understood forgiveness, it is quite simple that you've got a list of the things that you do wrong and you say wrong and you think wrong. And for you, it might be lying, it might be lust, it might be greed, it might be gluttony, it might be pride, it might be selfishness, it might be intolerance, it might be impatience. We've got a list of all the, the good things that we fail to do, the times when we are not kind and we should be, when we don't help, when we could help. And this is how Good Friday works. 2,000 years ago at a place called Calvary, it's like your list of all your wrongdoing was nailed to the cross, nailed to the man Jesus. And Jesus takes your sin and my sin onto his shoulders. And all the things that we have done wrong, Jesus pays for. And he dies in our place so that we can hear the words, I forgive you. That's extraordinary. If you know your Bibles, the Bible tells you that as far as the east is from the west, so far has God removed your sins from you. He's taken your sins and he's thrown to the bottom of the ocean. He's hid them behind his back. And so that you and I can sit here today as forgiven sinners. 
Now, I want you to leave here tonight sure, certain, confident that you are totally forgiven by God. Let me ask you, if you were to know that in 15 minutes' time you're going to stand before your holy maker and give an account for the way you've lived your life, would you be confident, would you be certain and sure that God has forgiven you? See, Christians can be confident, Christians can be certain, Christians can be sure. It's not arrogance. It's called assurance. Next time you're at the airport, watch people. There are two types of people at the airport. Well, some people at the airport are they're very relaxed and they're very calm and they're sipping their lattes and they're doing some shopping. And other types of people are standing by the check-in counter, looking stressed, anxious, panicking. And every five minutes they're chatting to the person behind the desk. Now, what's the difference between those two types of people? The people shopping and doing their, sipping their lattes, they've got the confirmed ticket. They know they've got a seat on the plane. They're just waiting for the plane to take off. But the people standing by the check-in counter, they're on a standby ticket. And they're not sure, and they're not certain that they've got a seat on that plane. And too many Christians live as though they've got a standby ticket, not a confirmed ticket. Friends, if you're trusting the blood of Jesus, you have a confirmed ticket. You can be certain, you can be sure that you've got your place in heaven because you're forgiven. And we're just waiting. We're just waiting to get there. That's why I love the thief on the cross. The man in our second reading. He was guilty. He knows he's done the wrong thing. He is moments away from death. He's moments away from meeting his maker. And with his last breath, he utters these words, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, I know you're the king. I, I do trust you. I need you at this moment in time. And hear these amazing words. Jesus says, I assure you, I guarantee you no maybes no perhaps you can be certain and confident that today in a few moments time you will be with me in paradise I don't know perhaps that perhaps that frustrates you perhaps you're thinking that that can't be fair this man has lived his whole life ignoring God and then with his last breath he just asked for forgiveness that's not fair is it these kind of deathbed conversions, you know, your Charles I or your Buffalo Bills or your Oscar Wilde's or Christopher Hitchens or perhaps even G- Steve, Steve Jobs, if the reports are, are right. The people who ignore God all their life, in their dying moments, they turn to Jesus. How can that be fair? Well, that's the point of forgiveness, isn't it? None of us deserve it. There's nothing that we can do to earn it. It doesn't matter when you ask for forgiveness. It's that you ask for forgiveness that matters. It doesn't matter when you turn to Christ. It's that you turn to Jesus that matters. 
Uh, please don't mishear me. I, I'm not encouraging you to, to wait until your last breath. You never know when God will take you, do you? And you're missing out on all the benefits of living as a forgiven person in the here and now. But if you've never done that, if you've never uttered those words, Jesus, remember me. Today's a great day to do that. And if you have, you've got your confirmed ticket. You're certain. You're sure that you are forgiven. Let's pray this prayer. Together. Dear Lord Jesus, how I wonder at your grace and mercy. When we cry out to you, you hear us. When we ask you to remember us when you come into your kingdom, you offer the promise of paradise. Your mercy, dear Lord, exceeds anything we might imagine. It embraces us, encourages us, heals us. O Lord, though my situation is so different from the criminal who cried out to you, I am nevertheless quite like him. Today I live trusting you and you alone. My life, but now and in the world to come, is in your hands. And so I pray. Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus, remember me today as I seek to live within your kingdom. Our third reading is from John chapter 19, verse 25 to 27. Standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother, his mother's sister, Mary the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. When Jesus saw his mother and the disciple he loved standing there, he said to his mother, Woman, here is your son. Then he said to the disciple, Here is your mother. And from that hour, the disciple took her into his home. I love these words. Have you ever thought about Mary? Let's just think about Mary just for a moment. How do you think she's feeling on that first Good Friday. How do you feel when somebody you love is in pain? How do you feel when somebody that you love is dying? How do you feel when that person who is dying is your own child? How do you feel when the person that you love is the person who You cradle in your arms and you nurse and you comfort it. And here he is being crucified. We're not told how Mary felt. But we are told that Jesus saw her and spoke to her. And I find that extraordinary that even in his darkest hour, 
Jesus is so concerned for the well-being of others, always thinking of others. That's our Jesus. He cares. Look, look at those words again. Woman, here's your son. And to the disciple, here is your mother. So Mary gets a, a new son, a new child, and the disciple, perhaps John, gets a new mother. And that's what Good Friday does. Isn't it? That's what the cross does. The blood of Jesus establishes a new family. A family not based on human blood but a family based on the blood of Jesus. And what do we call that family? The church. If you've never realized this, because of Good Friday, you are sitting next to your brother or your sister in Christ. Because of Good Friday, we are actually one family. I want to imagine that Jesus is writing us a pastoral letter here at Church by the Bridge based on this verse, woman, here is your son, son, here is your mother. I'll read it to you. Dearly beloved at Church by the Bridge, do not be afraid. Do not be anxious about anything. I know your needs, I know your fears and your anxieties, your loneliness and your pain. I'm leaving this world, but I'm not leaving you alone. You've heard it said, blood is thicker than water, and they're right. Because of my blood, you have a family. Because of my blood, this is your brother in Christ. This is your sister in Christ. Older woman, you are the mothers in Christ. Older men, you are the fathers in Christ. Because of my blood, we are family. Just as John took Mary into his home and cared for her, so we must care for each other. That's what church family does. Please never think I've left you alone. Even in the darkest hour, I'm there with you. When everyone else walks away, when you feel all alone, I will never leave you. Please cry out to me. I hear you. In your darkest hour, I will provide for you a word of comfort, a friend to talk to, the provision of a job or a house or a holiday. I will be your hope in the midst of emptiness. I'll be your purpose in the midst of pain. I will be your shelter in the time of storm. Please don't doubt me. If I can provide for Mary's needs in the moment of my darkest hour, my deepest weakness, how much more can I provide for you now I'm enthroned in heaven? So trust me. But look around you. You have a family. You're part of the church. Let me remind you of what I've written in my book, the Bible. Honor one another above yourselves. Romans 12. In humility, consider others better than yourselves. Philippians 2. Live in harmony with one another. Please stop passing judgment on one another. Accept one another just as Christ accepted you, Romans 15. Would you please carry each other's burdens? Galatians 6. Be patient. Bear with one another in love, Ephesians 4. 
be kind, be compassionate to one another, stop lying to each other. Would you forgive? Forgive whatever grievances you may have against one another, Colossians chapter 3. Be at peace with each other. Wash one another's feet and serve one another. Stop slandering each other. Don't grumble against each other. Pray for each other. Encourage each other. Build each other up. Or let me put it simply. Love one another. Remember the command I gave you? Love one another. Just as I have loved you, you must love each other. By this, all people will know that you're my disciples if you love each other. Oh, church, I know we're not perfect. I know the church will be the source of immense pain and hurt and pride and hypocrisy. It should not be like that. It won't always be like that. But you're not alone. Woman, here is your son. Son, here is your mother. Remember Good Friday. It makes us a family. Let's pray this prayer together. Lord Jesus, who in your dying hour showed concern for your mother and your dear disciple, help me that no matter what I'm suffering, I'm going through in this life, to still be concerned with my relatives and close friends. And thank you that through you, we may become part of the family of God. Teach us more of what this really means to love one another as you have loved us. In your loving name. Amen. This is Derek. He'll bring us our fourth word. Our fourth reading is from Matthew 27, verses 45 to 46. From noon until three in the afternoon, Darkness came over the whole land. About three in the afternoon, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eli, Eli, lema sabachthani. That is, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? We'll take a few moments just to reflect upon that before we pray. Join me in the response prayer. O Lord Jesus, I will never fully grasp the wonder and the horror of your abandonment by the Father. Every time I read this word, I am overwhelmed with gratitude. How can I ever thank you for what you suffered for me? What can I do but to offer myself to you in gratitude and praise? Thank you, dear Lord, for what you suffered. Thank you for taking my place. Thank you for being forsaken by the Father so that I might never be. Jesus, I thank you. Our fifth word we are reading from John 19, verse 28. After this, when Jesus knew that everything was now accomplished, that the scripture might be fulfilled, he said, I am thirsty. We will respond in prayer together. Dear Jesus, 
who felt the pangs of physical thirst as you hung on the cross, but bore it to the end because of the greater spiritual thirst which you had for my soul. I thank you. Now my soul thirsts for you and your righteousness. Grant that I may evermore drink of the living water of your Holy Spirit. In your name. Amen. Our sixth reading is from John 19, verses 29 to 37. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on a stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, It is finished. Since it was the preparation day, the Jews did not want the bodies to remain on the cross on the Sabbath, for the Sabbath was a special day. They requested that Pilate have the men's legs broken and that their bodies be taken away. So the soldiers came and broke the legs of the first man and of the other one who had been crucified with him. When they came to Jesus, they did not break his legs, since they saw that he was already dead. But one of the soldiers pierced his side with a spear, and at once blood and water came out. He who saw this has testified so that you may believe. His testimony is true, and he knows he is telling the truth. For these things happened so that the scripture would be fulfilled. Not one of his bones will be broken. Also another scripture says, They will look at the one they had pierced. Do you believe that it's finished, it's complete, it's done? There is nothing more that you have to do. Jesus did it all. Uh, those words, it's finished. They could be spoken in a negative way, in a kind of rejected way. You know, when, when you failed your exams, oh, it's finished. That's not how Jesus spoke them. It is finished. Uh, there was a victory, there was a celebration, there was a completion. It is finished. Uh, finishing is actually quite hard to do. We, I think we're very good at starting things, and we're really bad at finishing things. I've got a stack of books that I've started to read, and they're half read. But I never got around to finishing them. It's easy to start a diet, isn't it? It's hard to actually finish it. It's easy to sign up for a marathon. It's really hard to finish a marathon. But Jesus said the words, it is finished. He finished the job. He completed the work. Uh, go home tonight and Google Tanzanian Marathon Olympic. It's an amazing video clip of this Tanzania marathon runner. And he runs into the stadium and he's literally hours, hours behind the gold medalist. Most of the crowds have gone home. 
He's battered, he is bleeding, he is bruised, and he limps over the line. And the reporter asked him, why didn't you just give up? He said this, My country did not send me 7,000 miles to start a marathon. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Friends, Jesus did not step into the world to start the salvation process. He stepped into the world to finish it. Jesus did not leave the luxury of heaven just to start the process. He left the luxury of heaven to do the job, to finish the job, to complete the race. So we've got nothing left to do, have we? Do you remember Jesus praying in the Garden of Gethsemane? This agonizing picture of our Savior on his knees praying before his Father. What does he pray? Father, if there's any other way, take this cup from me. Yet not, your, not my will, but your will be done. See, to finish the job, to complete the job, someone had to drink the cup. And we're not talking about a cup of champagne, we're talking about a cup of God's wrath. The cup of God's righteous, holy, just anger. God's anger at our sin, God's wrath at our sin. Someone has to face it. It's right to be angry, isn't it? I hope you felt some sort of righteous anger these last two weeks when you hear of someone flying a, a plane full of people into a mountain. It's right to be angry at that, isn't it? It's right to be angry when you hear of child abuse within the church. It's right to be angry. And God is rightly angry at our sin. And that anger needs to be poured somewhere. On the first Good Friday, as Jesus Christ hung on the cross, God's wrath, God's anger for the sins of the whole world, not just your sin, not just my sin, but God's wrath that every sin from every person has ever lived, past, present, future, it was all poured out unto him. As he drank the cup of his father's wrath, hear those words, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Because our Saviour has experienced the, the wrath, the white-hot anger of his father. As he drinks the cup, he drinks it to the, the very last drag, and he, he, he cries out the words, it is finished. What he's saying there, friends, is that if we could actually examine the cup of the Father's wrath, you could get a, get a, a magnifying glass, get a, a microscope, and you would not see a single drop or molecule of wrath left to be taken. Because Jesus took it all. That's why we stand here sure and confident, because it's done. It's done. 
when people ask me what's the difference between Christianity and other religions, the right answer is to say just two letters. Because every other religion is spelt D-O, do. Do this, do that. Try to be good, try to do this, try to do that. Do your best and perhaps, just maybe, on that final day you've done enough. And that's exhausting. Now how is Christianity spelt? It's got four letters, hasn't it? D-O-N-E. Done. It's all been done for us at Calvary. Because it's finished. Jesus paid it all. Yeah, it's actually quite offensive to sit here today and think that you have to do something. It's almost saying to God that Jesus didn't do quite enough. It's actually quite offensive to God to sit here today and to try and repeat that sacrifice. It's saying that that was not sufficient for the sins of all the world. The right response on Good Friday is to sit here and to say, Wow. Thank you, Jesus. Because you did it all. And you paid it all. Let's pray. Together. Show me your ways, O Lord. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth. For you are God, my Saviour. Thank you, dear Jesus, for your finished work on the cross, which brought eternal salvation for me. I realise that I can add nothing to this, nothing of good works, church attendance, Bible reading, prayers, baptism, all of which are important, but none of which can help in any way to earn my eternal salvation. I need only trust your mercy and grace and accept the gift of eternal life purchased for me at so great a price and live in thankfulness for this great gift received. Thank you, dear Lord Jesus, in your saving name. Amen. Listen to Jesus' final words. It was now about noon and darkness came over the whole land until three, because the sun's light failed. The curtain of the sanctuary was split down the middle and Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I entrust my spirit. And saying this, he breathed his last. When the centurion saw what had happened, he began to glorify God, saying, This man really was righteous. All the crowds that had gathered for this spectacle, when they saw what had taken place, went home, striking their chests. But all who knew him, including the women who had followed him from Galilee, stood at a distance, watching these things.